Father God, we pray for those uh, sisters and brothers that are there in this uh, small church in Texas. We pray against the work of the evil one, God, and its many manifestations that looks so many different ways. But this is what happened last week was one of the ugliest. We pray for healing to happen where physical healing is needed. We pray for spiritual and emotional healing to happen there in that community where obviously that's desperately needed. We pray that those individuals would find what is truly a miraculous power and uh, supply of strength and peace that comes through Jesus, through him alone. And uh, Father, we pray for ourselves now as we study too that you would teach us and and enable us to learn from you and to go forth from here uh, challenged and encouraged. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen? Uh, So this week we're looking at a problem that touches all of our lives at some point, and uh, that is the problem of loneliness. Uh, Loneliness uh, is not something any of us (laughs) readily admit to experiencing. You lonely? Yeah, I'm lonely. I mean, we don't, you know, uh, especially in a culture that is as hyper-connected as our culture happens to be. To admit loneliness to ourselves, let alone to anybody else, is kind of like admitting, yeah, I'm a loner. Yeah, you know, I, I don't have many friends, or yeah, I'm not cool, or yeah, I'm not connected, or yeah, I'm not very happy. And yet, uh, that doesn't change the fact that literally for all of us at times, feeling lonely is our reality. If we're really being honest, that's our reality. Human beings are creatures, uh, ironically, made for connection. To connect with each other, to connect with God. God said this in the process of making human beings. He said, let us make man in our image in our likeness and you know you look at those pronouns they're all plural kind of an odd way for God to refer to himself and yet we've come to realize that the reason God does this is that God actually exists in community it's a the fancy word for that is trinity you know father son and holy spirit they are a perfect community they exist in perfect unity they are yet distinct three persons and yet the same in substance and equal in power and glory. That's the Trinity. And we we could spend days talking about the Trinity. People do that. It's called seminary, and you pay a lot of money for it. (laughs) But the more relevant point for us this morning is to just let that sink in, this idea of being made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God is to be a, a person who longs for perfect connection and perfect community. Uh, To be distinct, yes, but simultaneously to want to be in perfect union with God and perfect union with others. It's just the way we're wired. It's what our heart, our spirit longs for, actually. Uh, It was God's original intent for this sort of unity and that sort of connection to always exist. But then, of course, as you start reading scripture, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, bam, you run into Genesis 3. And uh, it all kind of goes to hell in the handbasket, so to speak. That great moment of disconnection in Genesis 3. When the man and the woman ate from the only tree from which God had commanded them not to eat, that's what they ate of, and that command that God had given them not to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that particular fruit, that particular uh, 
practice of eating of that fruit. That, that command, that prohibition was not so much about that fruit as it was about the issue of trust, the issue of obedience. You know, it's interesting. Intimacy of relationship is always based on this thing of trust. Very, very important. Trust is essential in order to have intimacy of relationship. When that gets compromised, wow, all kinds of difficult, bad things happen. And precisely in the moment that they chose to do the thing God had told them not to do, they were breaking the trust that was needed for that community with God and even for their community, their unity, their connectedness with each other. Uh, That decision that they made created all kinds of unhealthy, destructive hierarchy in human relationships. I mean, you remember what happened. You know, they start blaming each other. God, the woman you gave me. He's blaming God, you know. Uh, Well, it was a serpent, you know. I mean, blame, hierarchy, uh, you will rule over, you know, you will be ruled over, God says to the woman. I mean, all kinds of unhealthy, destructive hierarchy in human relationships happens as a result of that catastrophically bad decision. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. You remember that. They become wanderers. They go east of the garden, we're told, east of Eden. And they become aliens in a place that was now not their home, not originally intended for them. The garden was originally intended for them. And so they experience the consequences of their rejecting God and God having to put them out of the garden because God didn't want them to eat of that other tree that would cause them to live forever in this state of fallenness. So they now know the the gut-wrenching feeling of being on the outside of something when something deep inside of them longs to be on the inside, right? And that is sort of the essence of what we call loneliness. I remember many years ago in my life, I was 12 years old, I was lying in my bed in my bedroom, and I heard my father yelling and screaming and, and crying out in the bedroom next to mine. And I remember being sad. I remember feeling empty. I remember also feeling very lonely. And I woke up that next morning, kind of cried myself to sleep to find out my father had passed away. Massive coronary. And I remember feeling really lonely in that. But I remember also being at the age of 56, uh, my mother dying. I received word of my mother passing away. I remember feeling just as sad just as empty and feeling just as lonely. Point is this, you can be young, you can be old, you can be male, you can be female, you can be rich, you can be poor, you can be educated, you can be not educated, black, white, yellow, brown, purple, married, single, none of it matters. You can still be lonely. We've all experienced loneliness. We all know that feeling. Interestingly, there are a number of circumstances that can lead us to feeling lonely. It's not, you know, it's not just, oh, I don't have a lot of friends. Or that. There are lots of circumstances that can put us in that place of loneliness. Um, um, for example, you know, loneliness can take the form of unemployment. You've been working in a company, maybe advancing, maybe enjoying what you do, and all of a sudden you're unemployed. And now that team of people, they move on to new things, maybe better things, but you're not a part of that team and you feel loneliness. Or maybe you're single and you have this longing, uh, this ache inside of you that longs for intimate relationship, romantic relationship. And you live with the question of, you know, is this ever going to happen for me? God, do you care? And that's, you know, another type of loneliness. Or maybe you are married uh, and there's a growing distance between you and your spouse. Because the truth is, a bad marriage actually creates the worst kind of loneliness for some. Uh, 
You could be the head of a company making difficult, demanding decisions, and everybody's happy to let you make them. You know, we'll see how that goes, right? And you feel lonely. I mean, you're kind of at the top of that organization, but man, are you lonely in the process of making those kinds of decisions. Nobody seems to want to stand with you in those moments. And again, so, you know, serious illness, death of somebody you really love, changing schools, going through a divorce, becoming an empty nester, just aging. All these experiences can create in us a sense of disconnection or loneliness. And it's a painful, painful problem. There was a, an interesting study. You with me? Things are boring without pictures behind me, aren't they? I mean, that has an impact on us. You know, you're singing, you're looking at notes. Most of you weren't singing, by the way. But, I mean, it impacts us. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just noticing what a visual and what difference it makes. But, anyway, there was an interesting uh, study done on this topic uh, in, at the UCLA in 2003. Researchers studied the, the physical effects of loneliness on the brain. That's what they were studying. And uh, they concluded that loneliness or the feeling of being excluded, that idea provoked the same sort of reaction in the brain that physical pain causes in the brain. Now, that's interesting. It's also very significant because that helps us understand why human beings work so hard to avoid feeling lonely, right? To mask loneliness, to not deal with loneliness. What do human beings naturally do when they encounter pain, physical pain? What do we do? We recoil, right? We, we avoid it. We'll do anything to avoid physical pain. And the pain of loneliness is something that we'll do just about anything to avoid as well. I mean, Facebook, what's Facebook about? It's really mostly about not feeling alone, I think, or at least in large measure. Um, we surround ourselves with activity, 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 busy, 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 right? Uh, we turn on Netflix, we take a nap, we go shopping online or at a mall, uh, we eat a donut, we drink, we smoke, we exercise. There are no shortages of strategies for keeping the pain of loneliness away. And yet, despite all of the available distractions that we've created with technology or activity or what have you, Statistics actually indicate that we live in the loneliest recorded time in history. Time magazine called loneliness the next great health epidemic, right alongside obesity and substance abuse. Now, the irony here is pretty obvious, I think. In our attempts to become less lonely, you got Facebook and Instagram, Snapchat, and who knows what else is coming, we're actually becoming lonelier? Could that be? Apparently so. In our cultural attempts to avoid the pain of loneliness, we're actually experiencing more of it. And so the question is, what should we do? What is a healthy response to the problem of sinful disconnection? Because at the root of loneliness is all this disconnection we feel. What does a healthy response to the problem of sinful disconnection look like for somebody who wants to follow Jesus? Because let's face it, we all experience sinful disconnection, broken relationships, this feeling of loneliness, whether it's in our spiritual lives at times, work relationships, families, friendships. So what do we do with this? And the answer might surprise you. Uh, we can't put anything on the screen this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to some of these passages with me that I mentioned. Uh, if you don't, well then, you know, tough. 
Luke chapter 5. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, following a, an episode where Jesus interacts with a leper and heals this leper, Luke makes this single kind of curious observation. He says this in Luke 5, 16. He says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And that's kind of interesting. I, I think uh, one thing to observe here is that for Jesus, loneliness wasn't a state to be avoided. Loneliness was not something that you ignored. Loneliness was not something you wanted to somehow numb or run from, but rather something that Jesus actually moved into, went after, if you will. Apparently, he went after it quite a lot. Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke all talk about Jesus' habitual, intentional pursuit of quiet, lonely, wilderness places. Again, it's kind of kind of interesting. What's that about? You know, I want to. I do want to be clear here too that uh, at Deer Creek Church, we absolutely believe life is better when we do it together. When you have people who come alongside, support, pray for, encourage. This is why we have a small group system. This is why we encourage people all the time get connected in small groups. I mean, we hope that this place, this church, is one where you experience the love of God through other people. That's supposed to happen. But all that being said, it is worth thinking about this pattern that we see in the life of Jesus. Going to those quiet, lonely, wilderness places, what, what exactly is going on there? Now, here's a question for you. Kind of sets up the rest of our conversation. It's not really a conversation. I'm doing all the talking. But this is a question that, that um, I would love to flash on the screen but can't. So you're just going to have to kind of digest it. Here's the question. What if our loneliness... Instead of something to be avoided, could be a means by which we enter into the life of connection for which we were created. I'll, I'll ask that again. What if our loneliness is when, was meant to be a, an instrument, if you will? Uh, what if our loneliness, instead of something to be avoided, could be a means by which we enter into the life of connection for which we were created? Now, what if our calling as followers of Jesus is not to withdraw from loneliness? Another way of asking the question. It's not to ignore it, not to deny it, not to anesthetize against it, but like Jesus did, withdraw into it. Move through it. What would happen if we did that? Uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three psalms with you. Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Parts of those psalms. These were all psalms written by King David. And as you read them, you realize all three of these psalms are connected. They were clearly written at a time when he felt desperately alone. And I think in these three psalms, we see a progression, a movement, if you will, in the life of David. Something happening in him as he processes the problem of loneliness that will help us to process this problem as well. So that's where we're going. That's kind of the context. So let's look at each of these psalms. And as we do, too, I'll make a few observations as we go. Psalm 22 begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, those are some of the loneliest words in all of Scripture. Of course, Jesus went to those words when he himself was hanging on the cross and for the first time in all eternity past, experiencing separation from his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, David goes on to describe this loneliness that he feels. He says, why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. 
David is in so much lonely pain. He's awake in the night. He can't sleep. His mind won't shut off. You've been there before. He's fearful of enemies. He has no one to help him. At least that's the way it feels. He feels all alone. And so he pours out all of those thoughts to his God. And if you read through the book of Psalms, you'll find many, many honest, unvarnished, desperate prayers. It's one of the reasons I love Psalms, because uh, nothing is held back when you read the Psalms. David goes on to say in Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. That idea of shaking the heads, is, it's, a, it's an action of disgust. They're disgusted with him. Again, raw honesty as David paints this picture of what he's feeling, what he's seeing, what he's experiencing. He goes on to say, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That's pain he's feeling. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. Oh, my strength. What he's saying is, is you feel far off. So be not far off. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword. He fears for his life. My precious life from the power of the dogs, rescue me from the mouth of the lions, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. He's in a pretty desperate place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest and a theologian. Uh, he died in 1996, but during his lifetime, he did a lot of thinking about the problem of loneliness. He wrote actually several um, articles and books on this. One of the books is called Reaching Out, The Three Movements of the Spiritual Life. Uh, in that book, he writes the following. He says, whenever you feel lonely, you must try to find the source of this feeling. You are inclined either to run away from your loneliness, true, or he says, dwell in it, also true. When you run away from it, your loneliness does not really diminish you simply force it out of your mind temporarily, he says. The spiritual task is not to escape your loneliness, nor to let yourself drown in it, but to find its source. I think he's on to something here. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he's observing there. In fact, I think this is exactly what we see David doing in the progression of these three psalms. David lets his loneliness lead him to God in honest conversation or prayer. That's what prayer is supposed to be, honest conversation. And in prayer, he explores what's going on in here, what his feelings are, what his thoughts are, what is the source of his loneliness. David says this, I am a worm, not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads at me, he says. Now, you see, at the source of David's loneliness, there are real fears about his reputation, about his rejection from the people around him, about his being loved and not, or not being loved and not being respected by anyone. 
And he identifies the source of these fears and he pours them out in honesty, raw honesty to God. So the first observation I would make is just this. When, you were, when you're in that place of loneliness, what you need to do is move toward the loneliness in prayer. That is, in honest conversation with God. We need to pray prayers that honestly help us reveal, discover, get to the source of that loneliness in us. Not run from it. Not mask it. I mean, these are tough prayers. God, I'm afraid I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be single my whole life long, and this is paralyzing me. It's killing me. God, I, I want a baby so badly, I can hardly think of anything else. What if I don't or am not able to get pregnant? God, I've invested years in this business, and it's looking a little shaky. I'm not sure it's going to make it. What is that going to say about me? Everyone's watching. God, what if this thing fails? God, I can't get past what this guy did to me. I'm so angry. It's all I can think about. God, what if this disease that I have, what if it doesn't get cured? What if I die? God, I'm afraid. God, what if she doesn't come back? What if this relationship doesn't get put back together? You see, whatever it is, get to the source of your loneliness. Because denying it, trying to run away from it, trying to cover it over somehow, trying to avoid the source of your loneliness will not help you, friends. It will not help you. It will keep rearing its ugly head in ways that are unhealthy. Now, that's Psalm 22, okay? There's movement, however, Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. This is why it's helpful to read Psalm 22, 23, and 24 together, because you actually see movement. Because when you do that, you realize that in Psalm 22, there's a lot of things David wants. David wants a reputation. He wants security. He wants respect. He wants a human flesh and blood relationship. He wants to be rescued. But inevitably, David's journey leads him to the place where having named all of those things that he wants there in Psalm 22, he comes face to face with a, perhaps the hardest question any of us will ever have to answer. And that question is this, is God enough? What if I don't get what I want or what I think I need? Is God enough? You see, if we let it, our loneliness, it can be an instrument. It can be a tool that will bring us face to face with that very question. Given all I want, given all that surfaces in me when I'm alone with God and being really honest and trying to get down to the source of my loneliness, given that I might not get what I want, is God enough? That's a hard question. That's one I don't think we could rush to answer. Now, there was a famous study done in Germany in the early 1990s, which looked at the subject of belief in God as it relates to this thing of loneliness. Researchers wanted to know whether a person's belief in God made them less lonely. That's what they were wanting to determine. And, and now when they use the word God, they use it rather uh, ambiguously, kind of a higher power, kind of a 
thing, you know, in the study. And what the study found was that a mere belief in God had little to do with a person's level of loneliness or feelings of disconnectedness. That's what the study found. But what the study also found was that what a person believed about God was really the key that made all the difference in the world about how lonely they were. And boy, that's interesting. Those who believe God to be vindictive, wrathful, angry, uncaring, absent, whatever, they reported higher levels of loneliness and anxiety around that. In contrast, the folks who identified God with words like helpful, caring, loving, forgiving, gracious, actually generally felt less lonely. Point is this, it's important. When we're in a lonely place and we ask the question, the very difficult question, is God enough? It matters a great deal who we think God is. Psalm 23, David tells us who he thinks God is. He says about God, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'll tell you what shocks me in those words as I read them. It's the description that David gives of God even though he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, circumstances haven't changed for David from Psalm 22 to Psalm 23. Things are not as David would have them be. He is still fearing for his reputation. He's, this, none, none of this has been resolved. He's still not respected. He's still not loved. He's still not being followed. He's still in fear for his life. But he is in this place called the shadow of the valley of death. And he, while he is there, he remembers who his God is. His God is someone who guides. His God is someone who shepherds. His God is someone who comforts. His God is someone who cares. And his God has been doing that for him his whole life long. And so in prayer, as he gets to the source of what his loneliness is, David remembers, oh yeah, God is enough. Moving into his loneliness, talking honestly to God about this, discovering the source of his loneliness has led him to depend on God in a way that he never would have done if his circumstances had been to his liking. Henry Nouwen, again in that same book called Reaching Out, he talks about this important movement where we transform uh, or we move from the place of loneliness to what he calls a place of solitude. He says, loneliness is the pain and emptiness of feeling alone. Duh, okay, that's a good point. And he says, we're not created for that. We're not meant for that. But he says, solitude, on the other hand, is learning to be alone with God. And when you learn to be alone with God, you discover you're not alone. Interesting irony. You're not alone. Loneliness is the prayer of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Solitude is the prayer of Psalm 23. I will fear no evil, for you are with me, you see. And David moves from loneliness to solitude. And that's observation number two. Part of what David is discovering is that solitude, being alone with God, is the profound antidote to the deep problem 
of loneliness. Um, in John 17, Jesus uh, is talking to his followers there, and he says something very profound, I think, John 17, 3. He says, now this is eternal life. And as you know, that's a, one of those um, rather uh, jam-packed ideas, this thing of eternal life. It means abundant life, satisfying life, full life, rich life, life as it's meant to be. Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the point is that full and rich and everlasting life at its core is not circumstantial. It's relational. A full and rich life, everlasting life, comes to us from knowing God and knowing that He knows us, not from always having great circumstances in our life. Now, we got to be careful here because it's easy for us, because of the brokenness in us, to think that God doesn't care about our circumstances. That's not true. That is simply not true, and that's another sermon. God cares a great deal about the circumstances in our life. But it's important to know that the essential determinant of the full, rich, everlasting life is not whether or not things go my way, but whether or not I can say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. You are with me, he says. Friends, when we can say that in our loneliest, darkest moment, we find a a life source or a power for living that is unlike any other. David says this, he says, even though his enemies are all around him, like dogs attacking him, he says, you, he says to God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, when I get to my loneliest place, the place I'm most fearful, the place that's most difficult to me, God, I find you there. And not just that, I find you there having set a table for a meal where we can sit down in front of my enemies and have a conversation and I can be honest with you and you can be honest with me and we can be together here in the presence of my enemies. And here's the thing. If we look at the story of humanity, it begins with this meal of disconnection that happens in the garden, Genesis 3. That meal uh, introduced loneliness. It, it introduced disconnection between people and between people and God. And if we keep leaning into our loneliness, if we keep asking the question, God, what kind of God are you? We discover this God actually offers us another meal. Besides that meal that was eaten there in Genesis 3, the meal that should never have been eaten. It's a meal that God offers that is an opportunity to rebuild what's broken. It's a table of connection. It's a table of hospitality. It's a table, a place of intimacy, when and where we need it most. Right there in the presence of our enemies. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that our circumstances are going to change. It doesn't mean that the pain of our loneliness is going to magically disappear. It doesn't mean that the ache of betrayal uh, will just vanish. It doesn't mean that we'll be able to answer the very, very hard question of why. Why, God, is this happening to me? But in Psalm 23, when all is said and done, David is still in that dark place, the valley of the shadow of death. And it's in that dark place that we see that David has changed. Not his circumstances, but David has changed. So again, being alone with God is the profound antidote to loneliness, crippling loneliness. Now, from Psalm 23, we move to Psalm 24. We see more movement. 
David says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. You see, David has moved from Psalm 22, the loneliness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To Psalm 23, solitude. I'm never alone. I might feel alone, but I'm never alone. He's here with me. He set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. To Psalm 24, which is a profound sense of faith and trust in God and trust in what's needed for connection and community. David is now deeply trusting his God, believing in his God. And this trust, this connection is literally transforming David in the midst of his difficult circumstances. In Psalm 24, David's in a place of surrender. He is trusting in his God. It was circumstances that led David into his loneliness, but in that place he met God and he sat with him at a table in the presence of his fears, his loneliness, his emptiness. And now David's able to say, you know what? Circumstances that were once controlling me Circumstances, I admit, I don't understand. I don't know why this is happening to me, but these are circumstances, God, that I give to you. And David says with confidence that when a person surrenders to God in this way, this is what he says, Psalm 24, 5, he says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Vindication is being proved right. So observation number three, We can move through loneliness to that place of solitude. We see David do that from Psalm 22 to 23. And through solitude with God, we can move to a place of confident surrender to him. Confident surrender to God lets us live life with peace and power that are so great it can and it will overcome the world. That's the promise Jesus made. Jesus said this in John 16. He said, I've told you these things. What did he tell them? Well, he had told them about the Holy Spirit. and He had told them uh, who would come and be a comforter, be an encourager. Uh, He had told them about a place being prepared for them in heaven with his heavenly Father. He had talked to them about the importance of abiding in him. He says, I've told you all this stuff so that in me you may have peace. He says, in this world you will have trouble. (laughs) Understatement. In this world you're going to have trouble. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus did for us. And we see this in David's life. David changes in these three Psalms. He goes from overwhelming circumstances that produce fear and loneliness in him to a much bigger narrative, a much bigger perspective on life, a place where God is in control, a place where the earth is the Lord's, he declares. The the generation of those who seek him, he says, will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. God is the King of glory. You see, that's Psalm 24. And that's David's new confidence, which comes from that movement from loneliness to solitude to confidence and trust. Friends, this is why Jesus sought out lonely places. Because when he was tempted to be broken by aloneness, he found solidarity with his father. And it was in those alone places that he discovered, in fact, you know what? I'm never really alone. Not really. That's a lie. I'm never really alone. My God, my Father is always with me, even in the presence of my enemies. 
And with that confidence, Jesus could move forward. He could move through whatever circumstances he needed to move through one day at a time with faith and with trust so that even when circumstances led him to the pain of the cross, a place where admittedly he did not want to go, Father, can you remove this cup from me, he asked. He did not really want to go there, but he could still go there because he believed that it would not be the end of his story or the end of his unity or the end of his relationship with the Heavenly Father. His Father would vindicate him. And you see, that is the power of a deep relationship with God. That is the power of the gospel itself. And it should give us a confidence really to be able to face anything. I always hearken back in my mind, you know, I compare us as Christians today and the world that we live in to the world of Christians and millennia earlier. Christians waiting in the bowels of the Roman Colosseum, a group of them, they know they're the next piece of entertainment and they're going to face the lions, the tigers, the bears. Oh my. But they're going to really face them short of a miracle, you're going to experience a gruesome death. How do you have confidence in the face of something like that? They did. How do you have confidence to face difficult conversations with people you love where difficult conversations need to occur? How do you move into those kinds of spaces? None of us want to go there. How do you, how do, you do that? Even feelings and circumstances, deep feelings and circumstances that produce loneliness in us. How do you you overcome that? Well, you know, that moment when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that is the single loneliest moment in all of human history. You know that, right? Where Jesus is experiencing separation from his heavenly Father with whom he's never been separated for all of eternity past. But Jesus endured that separation and that forsakenness, that aloneness for you and for me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words Jesus chose to speak. That was Jesus' valley of the shadow of death, to be sure. But he stepped into it. He didn't run from it. He didn't let it cripple him or stop him from holding on in faith and trust to the Father. He didn't try to avoid it. He moved through it to connect with his Father. Three days later, he's back. He's back. He's vindicated, you see. Sin and death are conquered. So here's the point. Moving into our loneliness, even knowing there will be pain, pain for sure, but this moving into our loneliness, pursuing God in it, holds out the promise of solitude. Discovering we're never alone. And there you discover real life. You discover eternal life. You discover connected life. You can't be disconnected from God. Nothing can separate us from Him. Henry Nouwen said it very beautifully. He said, uh, he writes, he says, you are called to unity. And what he means there is we're called to connection. We're called to be connected to each other and we're called to be connected to our God. And he says, that is the good news of the incarnation. In other words, Jesus came to make real unity with God possible. Jesus came to make uh, to repair and to fix the brokenness in our relationships. He came to make that possible. And now he goes on to write, the word becomes flesh and thus a new place is made where all of you and all of God can dwell. 
Yeah, it's, it's that table that David was talking about, that table that's prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. And now it says, when you have found that unity, that connectedness with God, he says, you will be truly free. And what he means is you'll, you'll be free from the bondage of fear. You'll be free from the crippling implications of feeling lonely because you'll know you're not alone. And I would just add to that, you'll be able to say, you know, Jesus, you are enough. You'll be able to know that. You'll be able to feel that. You'll be able to experience that. And that's what he longs for us to know and to feel and to experience. Pray with me. Jesus, you are enough. Uh, We acknowledge that that declaration, those words, they are hard to say. Sometimes circumstances, frankly, overwhelm us. Sometimes we feel the ache of loneliness so deeply that it doesn't seem like you're even there, God. But that's a lie. You are there. God, we would pray for the person who's here this morning and who is just feeling alone. There may be feeling scared, afraid of the future. They have so many unanswered questions and feel like they just stand alone. God, we pray that you would come alongside that person today and we pray that in solitude with them they would come to know your love and your forgiveness and your presence with them. You will never leave them or forsake them. May they know that you are their shepherd, just as David came to understand that. May they have confidence and peace and power that comes with that awareness. Thank you, Father, for being with us always. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to go all the way to the cross. To move from a place of loneliness to a place of solitude and a place of discovering that the Father is always with you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have come to live within us and and that you comfort us and you counsel us. Lord, we love you and we pray these things, all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.